in swinger. Oh, oh and out the goal! The Republic of Ireland oh. have scored! John Egan with his first ever international goal! What a moment for Stephen Kenny! Full live commentary of the Republic of Ireland against Lithuania this Tuesday on OTB Sports Radio. Monday Night Rugby on Off The Ball with Vodafone main sponsor of the Irish rugby team we all belong to the team of us Plenty to discuss from the weekend that was joined in studio by Keen Tracy of the Irish Independent great to have you in thanks for uh, popping in Thank you for having me Joe We were just saying there during the news you're going to Toulouse for Ireland France in round two of the Women's Six Nations these are the things you will do for your craft I applaud you it's commendable Yes I'm I'm looking forward to it. There's definitely worse places to, to be in France and Toulouse for a weekend. Um, hopefully the weather holds up now. So, yeah, looking forward to it. Um, so it was an encouraging start, but a very different test is awaiting this weekend. And I think kind of everyone realises that, really. They sure do. We were just saying as well, best of luck at Dublin Airport. I know, Give I know. It five hours and you might get through. I know, like, it, like th- over the last couple of days, it's gone up to like three hours before. Now it's up to three and a half. So I'm kind of worried by Friday, it could be like five hours before. So mm. uh, I'm flying early on Friday. So hopefully I miss most of the madness but I'm conscious that it is a Friday as well. So, yeah, yeah not great, but we, hopefully we'll get there anyway. Let's start with the Women's Six Nations and then we'll talk a little URC. Ireland 19, Wales 27. The French on Sunday in Grenoble beat Italy and England running nine tries in Edinburgh against Scotland. England very much the defending champions and they will play France in France in round five. So from a championship perspective... England and France are very much the haves as opposed to the have-nots in this tournament and the tournament is building to their round five clash. But let's talk Ireland then against Wales. Uh, For starters, at the RDS, just worth saying, record crowd, 6,113 through the gates, beautiful sunshine. Uh, Again, context is everything here. There was a time not so long ago when these games were at Ashburn and these games were getting hundreds and certainly not 6,000 plus. Yeah, it was it was a great occasion. I mean, I, I, at the start, I was kind of thinking, God, it doesn't look like there's many here, but I think they kind of streamed in towards the end. And one of the, I don't know if you'd say issues about moving it to RDS is obviously it's not it's much bigger than Donnybrook where the games had been on so I was just worried from I hear so many people having this discussion about League of Ireland grounds I was just wondering how it was going to look on TV when both of the stands behind the goals were closed off and empty it didn't kind of give a true reflection of I think the the size of the crowd that was there so um, yeah like Covering the, the women's games, is it's a very, very different crowd. And I think the last time I was in here, we were chatting about the atmosphere at the Viva Stadium and stuff. Um, what I love about it is that the age demographic is so young. There's so many young girls, but also young boys as well. And it's infectious. Uh, like There's a real good buzz there. And I think you know, people are, are willing to, to get behind this team. I mean, from, from my point of view, I'm certainly kind of fed up of the negativity around women's rugby as well. And OK, they didn't get the the win, but there was there was plenty of encouraging signs, I thought. Mm. So Ireland 19, Wales 27. On the face of it, if you go from beating this Welsh team 45-0 mm. in Cardiff to losing at home and not even coming away with a losing bonus point, this is very bad. So explain to us why on the face of it, when there shouldn't be much optimism, there is some. Yeah, I've seen this kind of being used as kind of almost a stick to beat this this women's team with. Uh, there's 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 a couple of different strands to it, Joe. Like, I mean, the, the first thing and the obvious thing to state is that since that game, the WRU, the Welsh Union, have handed out 12 professional contracts to their team now. I thought it was certainly noticeable in the conditioning of the players, uh, of the Welsh players, their, their fitness towards the end uh, really told. Uh, they've also handed out something like 12 retainer contracts as well. So, 
like just to give a bit of context, Ireland had three training camps before they went in. So Wales have been full time preparing for this. So you can't overlook that. Like it's not a level playing field. Like all these girls who are who are playing for Ireland are either juggling jobs or else they're juggling college work. So not easy at all. Uh, Secondly, it's a very different Ireland team to the ones to, to the team who's put 45 points in them last year. Like you're talking about savage experience lost from that team, like Claire Malloy, Kira Griffin, Lindsay Peach. There's there's several players. So I think Emer Considine was the most experienced uh, player on Saturday, and she had 22, 23 caps. So that that puts it all into context. I was kind of doing up for the paper on Saturday the total caps within each squad. And Wales had over three times the number of caps that Wales had. So, again, you can't overlook all these aspects of it. Like, the base is pretty low where Ireland are starting from. And if anyone who's expecting overnight miracles yeah. is is foolish, really. Yeah, I think the context here, all of those points you make absolutely valid. And on the caps point of the match day 23 for Ireland, 17 players had 10 caps or fewer. Mm-hmm. of the 23. So in effect, what's happening here under new, a new coach in Greg McWilliams is that because Ireland have no World Cup to worry about at the end of this year, they are starting their post-World Cup rebuilding cycle now. Mm-hmm. Whereas all the other teams are building up the World Cup. That's why Wales have all that experience. And so that is an important context uh, to remember here. The other thing, I mean, if we're to talk about the game itself, just looking at the two sides uh, pre-game, it's very clear Greg McWilliams has set out a stall as the new coach. I'm going to play this very mobile brand of rugby. We're going to have the ball and play a lot. It's going to be intense. We're going to be very, very fit. Mm-hmm. Now, again, your point about other teams being professional and Ireland somehow going to be fitter than them is an issue potentially, but then again, other teams are bigger. And that's the, that's the issue for Ireland. The Welsh front row alone was 54 kgs mm. combined heavier than the Irish front row not mm. to mention the rest of the pack and we noted that pre-game and we said okay well let's see how this plays out and initially it wasn't so bad but certainly across the second half uh, Wales just mauled Ireland off the park and all that power uh, came into effect there was a try held up on 53 minutes with a maul mm. and then Donna Rose replacement prop scored uh, two tries rolling mauls it seemed like Ireland were just powerless to do much about it. They were, but I don't think they helped themselves either. So the first try that Wales scored, like it came from a five metre line out that I was so surprised that Ireland competed at that line out because in so many situations like that, you'll see that te- unless you you are really confident that you're going to steal the ball, you stay in the ground because it allows you to set them all. Yeah. I thought that was a bit of naivety, uh, to be honest. Um their penalty count was through the roof. Was it 14 or 16 penalties? 16. Like a load of knock-ons. So they were giving Wales chances, I felt, to to get back into the game, if you know what I mean. And it's it's funny, like, I mean, you talk about the style of play and also the issues at hand and you're spot on. It's the, the power game. It's so similar to the conversations we have at Nauseam about the, the men's team. So... Um, I was kind of thinking about this afterwards. I didn't think the scoreline... I know Wales' power game showed in the end, but I I don't know, was it just being there? But it felt like a closer game to me, like because Wales did run in three late tries. Ireland were down to 14 players, which, OK, it was for persistent, you, you know, giving away penalties. But I thought it was a bit harsh as well on, on Emer Considine. So, um, you know, they did score two tries in the last 10 minutes when Ireland were down to 14 players as well. So yeah. it's important to, to kind of keep that in mind. So, yeah. And, and also Ireland led for the whole game until the hour mm. mark. So, you know, there was this sense of things were going along OK for a huge amount of that game. 
they scored some lovely tries as well. Like yeah. the, the point of thirty one percent possession. Yeah, that's the only. I mean, Aaron couldn't keep the ball either. Was a slight worry anytime they seem to get into the Welsh 22 they seem to score a pretty good try like the Sam Monaghan offload yeah. for the Linda Jungang try is was exceptional and mm-hmm. you kind of with that was in the first half and it was yeah, lots of unstructured play and all the kind of things there's kind of a parallel with what the men Absolutely, are doing yeah. at the moment all that kind of stuff and it finishes with second row throwing an outrageous offload to a prop who's running this fantastic line uh, beats uh, her player in front of her and touches down you think okay well if, if this is the Greg McWilliams party then sign us up it's just they got caught at the death quite badly and that's going to happen no more than the men you know trying to play this game that the mistakes are going to be part and parcel of it like I said the, the base is pretty low and if you are like kind of using the parallel with the men um, it was so long before we saw Mike Cat and Andy Farrell's game plan to come to fruition so I was really encouraged by the attacking shape that Ireland played like I said they've had three camps together like that's next yeah. to no time at all um, I think last year when I was like reflecting back on obviously the, the disappointment of the World Cup qualifying campaign and probably before that as well the skill level of the players has been an issue and I was that was another reason why I was really encouraged I thought the skill level was far far higher than than we've seen in, in recent seasons you mentioned Sam Monaghan's offload I mean that was sensational uh, there was other things there was like Stacey Flood's skip pass for the try for Amy Lee Murphy Crow she made that look really easy like that was kind of Johnny Sexton-esque really. she did a very good game very good yeah and She's obviously been playing 10 for the last uh, couple of years, but they've moved Nicole Cronin, who was a scrum half originally, into 10. So that means they're playing with dual playmakers as well, which opens up opportunities exactly like we saw mm-hmm. for the try. And even, you know, Nicole Cronin kicking that touchline conversion, like kicking has been an issue in the women's game as well, but she absolutely bisected the post from, from the touchline and made it look, again, look, looked easy. So the skill level was much higher. And that is the big thing that Greg McWilliams has focused on since he's come in. He wants a mobile pack. He wants athletic players to, to, to be able to play this high-tempo game. What is it? He wants the ball and play to be up at around 36 minutes, like which is obviously ambitious, but that's what he's aiming for. And yeah, I would assume part of his thinking is that to play that game plan, it's one way to counteract the power teams, but inevitably you, that is going to catch up with you again. And like we said, France this week, they they weren't firing on all cylinders at all against Italy and you'd kind of worry that, you know, they were just kind of getting started here and like I said, England are, are operating on another level as well. So like if we're being honest about it, it's a shootout for, for third place. And like before the game I thought Ireland's three home games were winnable. Uh, I still think the games against Italy and Scotland at home are definitely winnable. And it's just about seeing what you can do in the other two games without being sort of overly negative about it. Yeah. Because Nicole Cronin, you mentioned there at 10, is an interesting case of point. 10 has been a problem position for mm-hmm. Ireland. A lot of different players tried. Stacey Flood last year and then moved to 12 for this game. So it seems uh, Cronin, she won her 17th cap at the weekend. She's a small player. She mainly has played a scrum half, but seems Neve Briggs has been working with her very closely and specialised training mm-hmm. to turn her into a 10, in effect, is how they, they saw that. And then there was a 21-year-old in Avian Riley making her debut at 9. So that's a completely new composition at 9, 10, and then Stacey Flood moving to 12. Like if this was the men's game, for instance, all we would be talking about all week is, my God, we have a new 9, we have a new 10, mm-hmm. Stacey Flood's moving to 12. How the hell is this going to work? One, You know, first day out. Again, it it's didn't keeping work perfectly, perspective, isn't it? it? There's a context for all of these. I would say like uh, Nicole Cronin's maybe a touch quieter than Stacey Flood seemed to be very prominent. And I, I guess if you can get Cronin as involved, that might be something they'll look to over the coming weeks. 
exactly but like there's a reason for that because uh, Nicole Cronin hasn't been in around the squad for the last few years so you yeah. can't expect someone to come in and play 10 it's the old debate again that we've been having about like someone like Joey Carberry if he hasn't been in there how do you expect him to come in and be this leader so yeah. I think that will come she was instrumental in Munster winning the Interpro title and she played 10 so and you're right like Neve Briggs has obviously worked really closely with her so it'll be interesting to see you know there was a lot of sevens players involved um, at the weekend which they, they played really well but come the latter stages those players aren't going to be available Do you think that's the reason for instance Stacey Flood who will be one of those sevens players departing potentially that they've said well we, we, we need certain fundamentals in place here we need a nine and we need a ten so let's put Nicole Cronin in ten and it means when Stacey Flood departs the scene for sevens we're not losing her at half Yeah possibly but like, like I said Nicole Cronin also led Munster to the Interbro title so she's probably there on merit as well and you know it was strange like I know you were at the game as well but like the, when Baving Parsons came on I mean initially when she came on the crowd get to their feet but my god like every time she touches the ball there's a surge of electricity goes through the stadium as very few players in Irish rugby do that um, and I, I just think like it's a World Cup sevens year and Greg McWilliams has pointed that out mm. but I really hope that players like Bavian Parsons aren't going to be held back. Now, I know there was talk that she was just coming back from an injury, her leg was strapped and stuff, but like the IRFU have a serious talent on their, hand, on their hands here and she's the type of girl who's going to inspire the next generation. I mean, she's only, what, 22 herself, but you can see it afterwards. Like, I mean... The scenes at full like full time, okay. The, the they weren't the fans weren't on the pitch, but it reminded me of David Clifford in the GEA when you see him swamped around for the selfies and stuff. All the, the people who were at the games, like all they want to see is Bavian Parsons because for obvious reasons, every time she gets the ball, she's liable yeah. to beat beat defenders. So I just hope that's harnessed in the right way. That because sevens is still a little bit alien to everyone here, you know, because it's played so far away, we don't really get to see it. Whereas the Six Nations is the bread and butter like it's the pinnacle so um, hopefully we see her come back in this week because like I said she will be one of the players who will likely be away with the Sevens later on in the tournament This is the dilemma for Irish Rugby and the RFU as they're managing this situation it's a World Cup Sevens year and they've put money and infrastructure into Sevens and yet as a fan base we're about 15s and I don't see that changing and it's the Six Nations that realistically and then the World Cup every four years but it's the Six Nations every year where people will judge how is Irish women's rugby doing mm -hmm. and at the moment I mean <laughs> you can understand why they're taking the best players going to the Sevens tournament but to just leave the Six Nations team high and dry I think to a lot of fans looking on over these coming weeks will just feel all kinds of wrong. Yeah, and this isn't this isn't a new issue at no. all. Like this is this has been the case for the last few years. And in a way you kind of think like a new head coach coming in, he's almost got one hand tied behind his back before he even gets started because the reality is the team who plays against Scotland on the final day is probably going to look very, very different, particularly in the back line, because you'll have you'll have players gone. And okay, maybe it's probably changing in in the last few years but like most of these players grew up you know wanting to play in the Six Nations the Sevens wasn't really a thing now it's an Olympic sport there's huge attraction to that and you see like the men what they achieved last year by getting to Tokyo it was incredible so maybe that is going to start to change with you know younger people oh it would be the dream to go to the Olympics but I would, I would safely say most of these players have dreamt of playing winning Six Nations titles and like I said that's what we were all brought up on really isn't it it's not yeah. chasing like an Olympic Sevens dream but and that's not to to diss that either like it's it's a class pathway as well but I think in the women's game 
they're clearly still trying to get that balance better and like I said it, the, the issue is going to raise it's fine now while the full squad is available but come the latter part of the, the Six Nations it's going to look very different and it won't look good and I don't think over the next 5-10 years however uh, much emphasis is put on sevens I still think the majority of fans for instance tuning in will want to see Ireland go well in the Six Nations mm-hmm. in the women's Six Nations and that is yeah, you know, and they want to see the best a, players playing oh, big time. There's a, there's, a, there's a tension there what the public wants and what the IRFU are doing. Mm-hmm. There's yeah, like you said, there's funding involved and everything. It's a it's a multi kind of layered issue if you want to call it like that. But um, it just like you know what, like we we had so many discussions throughout the pandemic about world rugby kind of aligning the men's calendar. You know, can we get the north and the south better aligned? But to me, it just seems baffling that you have a, a, such a big seven turn because this issue isn't just related to Ireland there's other teams who will be affected by it too but why do you, I think it's in Langford in Canada where the, where the yeah. tournament's on so why would you have that in the middle of the Six Nations yeah. particularly when you've moved the Six Nations into its own window which is brilliant by the way because I would say a lot more casual viewers tuned in last weekend than would have been the case if it had been in the middle of the men's Six Nations so rugby just doesn't help itself no. at times does it? Well even putting it on the same time as Ireland-Belgium in like a stone's throw like even trying to get to the game and everything do a quick Google for any other national sporting (laughs) events before I mean it could have gone at two it could have gone at midday England Scotland went at midday so again those minor frustrations are not insignificant Uh, last point looking ahead to Toulouse as you rightly say the French weren't perfect by any means against Italy they had 10 knock-ons 17 turnovers just uncharacteristically Mm. sloppy uh, didn't play well and yet still scored five tries, bonus point, and Italy didn't score a try. And Italy were actually pretty good in that game. So Ireland are really up against it in Toulouse. What's a good day? They lost 56-15, I think. Certainly 56 points conceded in Dublin last year against the French. Yeah, it's a, it's a tough one really because it's just, yeah, it's another level altogether. But look, you, you know, you never know the French could be complacent, those old French cliches. But like you said, they are building towards the World Cup. They're undoubtedly building towards this like shootout with England on, on the final day. But like, there's enough, there was enough encouraging signs like I said I mean the mall and the scrum and the set piece like the line out is going to have to improve immeasurably really going to France to, to have any sort of hope of keeping the scoreline respectable but just like in the, in the men's game like Greg McWilliams can't just magic up new players like that are bigger you know players these are the, the crop of players that like he has to he has to choose from so yeah. um, look hopefully they can do themselves justice but um, this is yeah going to be a serious test for them yeah it sure will our rugby coverage is with thanks to Vodafone main sponsor of the Irish rugby team we all belong to the team of us King Tracy here in studio let's talk some URC, Connacht 8, Leinster 45. 8,000 at the sports ground, I guess a precursor to their last 16 tie in the Champions Cup. The thing to say here is that at half time it was 8-7 to mm. Connacht and Leinster ran in six tries in the second half. Six in 24 minutes of rugby to be <coughs> exact. 53rd, 57th, 64th, 67th, 72nd, 77th minutes. Uh, six tries in 24 minutes. So they're top of the table. Connacht, meanwhile, well, they're in 10th they're in very serious danger of missing out on European rugby altogether next year and certainly the playoffs and they lost to Edinburgh in their last game 56 points to 8 so if in two successive games you're conceding 56 points and 45 points at home something's gone awry Mm, that that Edinburgh game was was the big one I mean obviously you'd have to say Tom Daly's early red cards changed the whole complexion of that game but yeah like I mean 
there was so much coaching upheaval. Obviously, Andy Friend was still there, but over the summer, you know, they got a new defence coach. They got a new attack coach because um, they, they basically switched roles. Uh, there was a new forwards coach. So there was a lot of change um, that went on. And I think like they had started OK, but it's kind of come undone now. And like you said, there is clearly issues there. Um, Leinster just went through the gears, really, in that second half, didn't they? Um it's interesting, like, we've seen red cards are becoming more and more common now, and you've seen teams struggle to break down 14 players, which I find is a really interesting concept, but, like, I actually did a piece on it a couple of weeks ago and spoke to a few people, and Bundyaki's line particularly stood out to me that he thinks, like, unquestionably it's much harder to play against 14 players for all the obvious reasons that, you know, defences tighten up and things like that, so it was impressive the, the manner in which Leinster put them away. I mean, they just ran riot in the second half, but you would be concerned about Connacht because there was there there is still such a good buzz now. They're they're recruiting pretty well, I would say. Over the summer, there's like what four Leinster players going down there. They've got a guy from New Zealand coming over as well. So um, they need that strength and depth because that has been their Achilles' heel. But like you know, you think of the redevelopment of the sports ground that's coming and things like that. You would just be fearful that the kind of the air could go out of this uh, pretty soon. So uh, they've left themselves with a mountain to climb now to to get into the Champions Cup next season and the playoffs. They were obviously without Mac Hansen and Bundyaki. Mm. Otherwise, in terms of strength, that conic side, yeah, like they're, they're they're still like a bit short in in the front row, I would say. And Bundyaki is such a talismanic figure for him. I mean, he's you know we all know how good he is, but like no less than when any of the provinces are missing their players, you can't be relying on one guy to kind of maintain the standards either. So uh, look, they they have they're going to Italy this weekend, isn't it, against Benetton? Yeah. Uh, they have a chance to to get back on track, but. Like my concern would be that what has that kind of defeat done for them psychologically before they take on Leinster twice? And they, Hansen and Bundyaki side, that's pretty close to them at full strength. Isn't yeah, it? not too far off. Yeah. yeah, like I mean, Tom Daly looking at a potential ban now as well. So, yeah, um, yeah like it's you know, like I said, you you wonder what it will do psychologically to them, and then you look at like I was look flicking through the Leinster training photos today, and I don't know. Sometimes you forget how many of the Ireland team Leinster actually have and this was today was their first day back and you're just looking through and you're essentially looking at the Irish team in in Leinster jersey so that is the kind of challenge that lies ahead and like if Leinster turned it on you'd be worried that it could be it could be over and done with after the first leg you know yeah the Leinster team if people are wondering from the game of the weekend again lots of guys we don't see all that often Jimmy O'Brien Tommy O'Brien on the wing Jamie Osborne uh, Kieran Frawley was a 12 Rory O'Loughlin Ross Byrne at 10, Luke McGrath was captain, then Peter Dooley, James Tracy, Michael Aladotoa in the front row, Moss Malone, Ross Maloney and Joe McCarthy second row, and then a back row, Reese Ruddock, Scott Penny, Max Deegan, all very fine players. Like, it just shows the strength and depth. Uh, you mentioned the red card a few times. So, this is three minutes into the game. Tom Daly comes out, and uh, what's happening, if people haven't seen it here, is Ross Byrne gives it to Kieran Frawley, and there's kind of a loop play in the offing, and, and Frawley uh, turns to his left and pops the ball off and takes a, a hit from Tom Daly. He doesn't wrap his arms, and his shoulder goes into the, to be fair, it was more neck than head area of uh, Frawley, but it was certainly very high, and Frawley didn't go for a HIA, but it wasn't far off being a real shot on the chin. Mm-hmm. And at that speed and going in that high, I don't think Tom Daly could have guaranteed afterwards that he hadn't hit Frawley on the head. And there was no mitigation, so he was given a red card. And Frawley, by the way, got another knock on the head tackling on 32 minutes and did have a HIA and, and passed it and came back on and won man of the match. But 
you think of Charlie Ewells and Ryan, you think of what that so easily could have done to Frawley and I am at a loss as mm-hmm. to why rugby players are still tackling their fellow professionals like this. That could have been at a delicate point in his career actually because he's going very well but trying to push further on. That could have been Frawley taken out of the game, concussed, missing the next number of weeks. James Ryan, we wish him well. We're going to have to start slapping one, two, three-month bans because the red card deterrent is not a deterrent. This mm. is just... I'm sick of talking about it week in, week out. I don't understand the Tom... I don't want to make it too much about Tom Daly, but that type of tackle yeah. is just commonplace and it's it's too dangerous to stay in the game, but it's staying in the game. It looks like it is. I think I'm right in saying as well, Kieran Frawley was just back after a facial injury as well, so to have gotten two knocks like that is obviously not ideal. Look... It was interesting that like you mentioned Charlie Ewells there and that happened so early in the game as well. So these kind of tackles can happen at any part of the game but I thought it was interesting that both of them were so early. So I don't know where players just coming out too fired up and that like I, I don't think there was any intent on Tom Daly's part. Absolutely not. But it was definitely the kind of tackle that he wanted to make to, to lay down a marker. You know, it was against his opposite man in an interpro derby. You can understand that but you've got to drop you've got to drop lower and to be fair I think he knew straight away that he had yeah. made a really bad mistake on Ewells and Daly when we say there's not intent there's not but like there is intent to go high yeah there's not intent to take their head off yeah. and but, if you're, but if you're going high you have to accept there is the distinct chance my shoulder is going to hit someone in the head yeah. so in that sense I take the intent point and I, I genuinely take it but like you're intending to go high mm-hmm. so you're now you're now risking the possibility of my shoulder his head high speed that's where you can only have so much sympathy the disciplinary process is a mess I would say at the moment uh, the last time I was in here I was t- t- talking to you about Bishmark Duplessis like sumo tackle on Alex Kendellen in South Africa and we were talking in light of Charlie Ewells and I was saying well here's an incident now that like the book just has to be thrown at this guy because it was so dangerous he got a three week ban which is just baffling to me like he could have easily broken Alex Kendellen's neck so um was he well behaved at the hearing? He was well behaved. Yeah, of course he was. Yeah, he brought the nice biscuits and all that. But it's just like it sends out such a bad message that you can do that this to a guy, a fellow professional, and get a three week ban for it. So I don't. Again, it goes back to my point where I don't think rugby really helps itself in that regard because there's very little consistency in the bans that we're seeing. Like Charlie Reuel's got the same, I think, didn't he? And if you were to compare the two incidents, okay, they're both really dangerous. But in my mind, what Bishmark Duplessis did was an actual neck breaker and he lifted the player off the ground and dropped him on his head so um, I, I just think the whole process is a mess it's, it's very difficult as well to to see any consistency like if you're from a supporter's point of view you know like there's just it's it, you know it, it, we're touching on Ulster actually really quickly Joe like the end the end game that that they had in South Africa basically they should have had a try at the end of the game and Dan McFarlane was, was seeding now I know this wasn't necessarily foul play but I saw the the new head of the referees and officials, a South African guy, was on South African TV yesterday basically saying that the referee got it wrong. Um, so that is definitely a departure change from what we've seen because we've, you know, that that stuff is all kept under cloak and dagger. So you had the head of the referees saying that, uh, yeah, like, you know, Ulster should have had that try. So maybe that's the way you go, that you come out and you, you have a bit more of an explanation because... 
I mean, from a journalist's point of view, like it, you're kind of kept in the dark a little bit. And I think from supporters, all you want to see is a bit of consistency that would hopefully deter people from making these kind of tackles. I fully agree with you. I think longer bans are the only way that you're going to change players' behaviour. Yeah, I don't even love saying that, but it's just, it's the same conversation far mm. too often. So it was, uh, last point, it was Callum Reid who mm. they thought had scored the winning try Ulster lost to the Stormers 23-20 Alan Quinlan was on OTBAM this morning pointing out the TMO South African mm. so I don't know if we're getting a Razzie Erasmus style video from Dan McFarland very very soon he was furious R- rightfully so it was a shocker an absolute shocker um, there was just so many different ways that it could, the caller would have went in Ulster's favour because it looked like it could have been a deliberate knock on from the Stormers defender um, but yeah like it was an inexperienced Italian referee okay. and I mean, from the outside looking in, it just looked like there was a lot of pressure kind of put on him to to change his mind. And I don't know if, you know, like I said, you had the head of referees coming out saying it was the wrong decision. So um, it wasn't a great look for the league. Okay, fair enough. Enjoy to lose. I will hopefully if I get there if the airport is okay. <laughs> well listen either way your Twitter feed on Friday morning of yeah, the queue yeah. will be uh, worth a look tune in yeah Keen Tracy of the Irish Independent with us Monday Night Rugby on Off The Ball with Vodafone main sponsor of the Irish rugby team we all belong to the team of us